0: This is the Review of Democracy, the online journal of the CU Democracy Institute. My name is Rohit Sharma, and I'm joined today by Moise Dundawala and Anuj Pavanya. Anuj and Moise are professors of constitutional law at the Jindal Global Law School in India. In a few months, Moise is moving to Oxford as a Leverhulme Fellow. Congratulations for that, Moise, and thank you so much for joining us, both of you. Thank you for having us. The 24th of April of this year, that's 2023, marked the 50th anniversary of the landmark case of Ananda judgment of the Indian Supreme Court. This judgment introduced what is known as the basic structure doctrine, which is also often referred to as the doctrine of unconstitutional constitutional amendments. Since then, the doctrine has traveled to many other jurisdictions and is seen by numerous defenders of liberal constitutionalism as a possible bulwark against rule of law or democratic backsliding. Today's interview, will try to better understand the basic structure doctrine and assess whether it can in fact save us from authoritarian or illiberal rule. My first question is fairly obvious and either of you can take a stab at answering it. What is the Kesavananda Bharati judgment and what is the basic structure doctrine?
1: So Kesavananda Bharati is like one of the most important judgments in uh, the history of Indian and even global constitutionalism. And it was unprecedented in the sense that it was decided by a 13-judge constitutional bench of the the Supreme Court. Never again has a 13-judge bench been constituted. And it is most well-known, although it has a very, I mean, as it is India is perhaps the longest constitution in the world. And this is one of the longest judgments in the history of Indian uh, constitutions, and maybe perhaps in global constitutionalism as well. And so there were 11 opinions, but uh, the basic like at its most elementary what it enunciates is the basic structure doctrine and the doctrine simply uh, uh, put suggests that there are certain essential features of the constitution there's a basic structure of the constitution which cannot be tampered with it cannot be abrogated annihilated even in the exercise of what was previously known as whenever the parliament Amended the constitution in in the purported exercise of its constituent power. So it it, it was like decided by a majority of uh, seven is to six, and um, you know it has it, it, as you as just said it it, it traveled uh, far and wide and has now come to be regarded as like a basic uh, you know postulate in in global constitutionalism.
2: I think it would be interesting to note the political context of this judgment uh, and also the constitutional context to this judgment. The constitutional context is, of course, that the Indian um, the, the process of amending the Indian Constitution uh, was a rather simple one. It is it was created like what they call a flexible constitution, where uh, for most of the texts, a two thirds majority uh, of of the Parliament, of both houses of Parliament, would be adequate. Uh, to, to amend the constitution and for certain other provisions uh, you needed, besides the two-thirds majority, you needed um, half the, uh, the the state assemblies to have also uh, ratified the, the, the amendment. Now since the, uh, the Constitution of India came into force in 1950, uh, there had been a plethora of amendments and uh, by 1971 uh, there had been, uh, as far as I'm aware, 23 constitutional amendments and this is an important thing to note because most of these amendments were passed between 950 and 967 when there was not only one party rule uh, in uh, one party domination in the Indian system. This, is, this era from 950 to 977 is seen as the period of one party dominance of the Congress party. And from 952 to 967, Congress also had more than a two third majority. Interestingly, from 1967 to 1971, uh, the, the fourth Lok Sabha, they, they lost that, that majority, which also made the process of amendment uh, more difficult—the uh, constitutional amendment. And this is important to note uh, because this is the period of what's seen as Mrs. Gandhi's, you know, self-avowed socialistic program. And the context is also that because there had been so many amendments passed in this period. There was this question of whether these amendments are themselves constitutional. You know whether whether uh, the process of these amendments themselves are constitutional. There had been there had been three constitutional judgments on this prior to Kesavananda. One was in the in the early fifties. Shankar Prasad, one was uh, in the mid sixties. That's uh, Sajjan Singh, and one uh, the most uh, well known one prior to Kesavananda was Golaknath. But Golaknath is an is an important signpost. This was this was given 1967. This judgment struck down the, the the prior two precedents, but also it's important to note that 1967 was the, was the year of the of the fourth talks Sabha where Congress somehow scraped through with with a simple majority, and with the with the fact that they didn't, as I earlier said, they do not have a, a two thirds majority. The process of amendment became much more difficult, and the court also argued that fundamental rights were unamendable. Now, this is important because in this period, nine fifty to 973, fundamental rights were largely seen through the lens of one particular right, that is the right to property. And the right to property, this is Article 31, was seen as a kind of a bulwark against the, the, the avowed policy of the Indian government to carry out radical land reforms, uh, uh, redistribution of land. Now, This was seen as an attack on the attempt uh, on on the part of the court to carry out these these radical measures. Now, what Mr. Gandhi was able to do then was to argue that the court was standing in the way of the mandate of of the constitution to carry out these uh, these kind of uh, what what Gandhi lost him called social revolution. Now, Basically, between this period from 67 to 71, the argument increasingly is leading up to the the fateful 71 elections, where the argument really is that the constitutional text, in a sense, is standing against the constitutional mandate. You see that the provisions like right to property, in a sense, to disallow for the carrying out the mandate of, 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 uh, of, of radical land reforms. And 71... Elections were specifically fought. One of the major triggers for that for that election, this is the first midterm election in Indian history. Trigger was, was a series of judgments the Supreme Court gave, which which struck down um, governmental policy, for instance, of bank nationalisation as well as abolition of privy purses. So this was a election which was, in a sense, as much fought against the code. the incumbent party uh, which was the, uh, mrs gandhi was arguing what she needs is a mandate from the people to make sure the constitution is less of an obstacle to the path of uh, of of of, social, of radical socioeconomic reform and in fact she gets that mandate in a sense arguably uh, she gets the biggest majority uh, which in any party had till then got and she got gets a size majority and immediately thereafter uh, I mean Hapati brings about brings out three very, very radical constitutional amendments, 24th, 25th, and 26th Amendment. And uh, in fact, uh, from, from that period, from 71 to 77, that period during which Kesavananda is given, that, that particular term of, of the Lok Sabha actually sees 19, as many as 19 constitutional amendments. So this there was a real threat then to the sanctity of the, of the constitutional text that these were not, not just routine amendments or amendments with regard to specific, you know, uh, problems that arise with regard to implementation of the Constitution, but this was a radical overhaul of the Constitution's promise, and therefore K. Savananda becomes really important. Sorry, this is a long answer, but this is a complicated question.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for that very comprehensive answer. Anush and Moise, I was wondering the, the story that, that Anuj just provided, it's a it's an indian one but i was wondering if the basic structure doctrine is purely in indian innovation or were the judges looking somewhere else for for inspiration
1: okay so let me start by talking about the american constitutional project in which as you know article 5 it's very difficult to to amend the constitution and that is essentially because um the american constitutional ideology is one where there's a deep investment in the wisdom and authority of the founding framers so despite all the problems of slavery and everything like they they kind of uh, you know are deeply invested in the idea that uh, the, the constitution that is framed by the founding framers enjoys some degree of sanctity it's almost like a it's it's a sacred kind of text and therefore amendments are are very difficult in contrast um as it's clear from anuj's story the indian constitutional model is futuristic. The Indian political project was, with the inauguration of the decolonizing moment, a so-called, you know, a break from the past, in a way, trying to unlock itself from the waiting room of colonial historicism. And in that, the constitutional document, the constitutional text was believed to be a, a means to achieve a social revolution. So the constitutional amendment process had to be Rather a very flexible one. So, if the American founding federalist debate was between Madison's reverence for the past and Jefferson's point that wisdom is not the monopoly of a single generation, B. R. Ambedkar, who wrote the Constitution and you know uh, in the Constituent Assembly as the, as its chief draftsperson, he was very clearly citing Jefferson for a for a flexible amending process. That's one side of the comparative discussion. The other country with which we can kind of draw some sort of connection, uh, like this reference to breaking away from the past that India shares. I mean, most 20th century post war constitutions are like that. But most significantly, the, the German basic law of 1949, it also wanted to break away from the past, you know, the, the history of, of, of the, the two wars and Nazism and so on. And in that sense, you know, there's some sort of affinity that it shares with the Indian constitutional project. but. India makes a very crucial departure, even from the German enterprise. The German model is, I would say, a very strong constitutionalist model, which is invested in the value of constitutional patriotism. It is deeply suspicious of sovereignty, because it is anxious that, you know, we don't want a Nazi-style takeover of the state. In contrast, sovereignty is absolutely upfront and center in Indian constitutional imagination. So more than a constitution of legality or uh, a constitutionalist constitution, India's constitution is first and foremost a constitution of sovereignty. And why is sovereignty important? It is important because India inaugurated the global decolonizing movement, and it was an expression of sovereignty, you know, an expression of the will of the people, the constitutional enterprise, the constitutional project, was an exercise of constituent power through which the will of the people was to be expressed and articulated one of the other things about the indian project is that this will of the people was not merely i mean as the founding generation thought it and as i spoke about Ambedkar uh, citing with jefferson it was not something like okay it's only the founding generation has said a thing and that's about it it's a futurist document and constitution is merely the constitutional text is merely a means to the ends of a, a social revolution. So therefore, I mean, India was really working with a, I mean, howsoever strong and powerful the state was, India was working with a dynamic concept, a dynamic understanding of constituent power. So in contrast with Germany, generally the discussion is that India picked up the basic structure doctrine through Dieter Konrad, uh, who is a German academic working in Heidelberg and also working in india and in south asia he, he delivered this lecture in banaras hindu university in the 1960s and from there nambiar picked it up who was arguing in uh, uh, ic gulaknath's case so they picked it up from uh, uh, Conrad, and Conrad, you know a- as i said this anxiety with uh, sovereignty that the german constitutional model had they ended up with uh, the eternity clause in the in the constitutional text that there are certain features of the constitution in article 1 and 20 uh, principles of dignity, the federal arrangements, and so on, they are unamendable. Indian constitution did not have any explicit uh, unamendable clauses, but yet Conrad was arguing, borrowing from uh, somebody like Carl Schmidt, who picked this idea from Maurice Horyu, the French thinker, uh, you know, that there are certain implied limits to, to amending power. So having said all of this, it certainly comes to India from the German model through, through Conrad, But what really sets apart the Indian uh, experience is that India had a political culture of some sort of a dynamic exercise of constituent power. What happens is, at least with Kesavaranda Bharati, if you understand the basic structure as a standalone doctrine, the court is merely inserting itself as another player, along with other constitutional actors in the political field so it's just inserting itself as one of the various other political actors in the constitutional field however there is a problem over here and that is where you know the contradictory nature of concepts becomes very interesting so the court basically fashions itself through uh, this this expression of basic structure doctrine and so on it fashions itself as a constitutional guardian you know okay we are the ones who are going to be the guardian of the constitution and where the basic structure doctrine as supplemented by the later work of the court becomes problematic is in the sense that it, you know and, and this has been a, like a bane of modern uh, politics and modern democracy everywhere in the world you know the the guardian of the constitution or the guardian of the political field itself becomes its its very master you know you try the, the, there's this metaphorical empty place of power that modern democracy opens up you know with the decapitation of the king and then you know we saw it first in the Reign of Terror in the French Revolution, and in different iterations, we've seen it in different parts of the world. And in India, you know, the basic the court acts in the name of democracy, not in the name of fundamental rights. So my argument would be that the court generates political power in the language of democracy, and then by fashioning itself as the guardian of the constitution, the second step that it step that it takes, and that is here is where I, I think Anurji's work becomes very important is that through PIL and so on, uh, it, it starts to speak in the name of the people themselves. And that is where, you know, not merely acting as a guardian of the constitution, but it's very master.
0: That's absolutely fascinating. We'll return to the questions of sovereignty, democracy and the people in a bit. But before that, I was I was wondering if we should unpack perhaps what has happened to the basic structure doctrine since it was first introduced. Anuj, I had the pleasure to hear you speak about the basic structure doctrine recently. And you argued there that the doctrine has evolved to a large extent over the years. Can you tell us how the doctrine has evolved and in in what kinds of cases it's used by the Supreme Court now?
2: Um, So I think now that we have had 50 years of this doctrine, I think in my view, actually, this doctrine has been remarkably successful in what it was trying to do. Now, One could have either a modesty of this doctrine, or a kind of a grandiose view Now, modesty was simply that there was a problem with regard to provision that governed amendments I to the constitution of the 368 that the process was was so easy that the constitution itself was uh, i mean there was an inadequate entrenchment of the constitution you know uh, so to uh to undo that problem and uh, the the ease of amendment uh to undo that or what actually to uh, to quote dita conrad you know, what he called the argument of fear or taking an extreme view of the constitution. That is, um, you know, um, taking uh, hypothetical instances where radical changes could be made to the constitution, uh, which would be allowed by the constitution itself, uh, by, the, by 368, uh, by the provision itself. Now, And also it's important to note that uh, one of the points he's making, and that's repeatedly made in this period, this picked up in the judgments in case of one of the, in the period meaning between 67 and 73, that's after Gulaknath, you know, gives this judgment where his fundamental rights are unamendable. That there are there are many other provisions in the constitution which are if they are amended uh, in a perverse manner or in a let's say by an authoritarian mindset, uh, then they can undo the very constitutional design. You know, for instance, with regard to uh, making somebody president for life, or you know, all kinds of provisions could be uh, could be changed, which you know, which would undo the very design. So that aspect uh, is important to note, and that's a problem with regard to Indian constitutional. Uh, design itself that as Mohit also mentioned there's a kind of a the uh, the idea of distrust of uh, the democratic majority is not adequately entrenched in constitutional design there's this term that is used throughout the first twenty three years of the Constitution about this story, that's the idea of misuse right that idea that three sixty eight can be misused now but but it's an interesting thing to think about why are we talking in terms of misuse and this is of course not just about three sixty eight though that is a particularly um, really extreme and important example, but there are examples about the emergency or about provisions, they like got dissolution uh, of, of state assembly which is again repeatedly resorted, resorted to and uh, on ordinances, etc. There are, there, are, there are many, many provisions of the Indian Constitution which, uh, about which the term misused is used and of course the most important perhaps being the amendment powers. Now, governing that problem is the fact that the, the Constitution itself makes the process of its of its quote unquote abuse or misuse, remarkably easy, and that is the contradiction of the constitutional draft or, or the constitutional text itself being seen as a kind of obstacle to uh, the constitutional project, and that's that's the contradiction that Mrs. Gandhi, uh, in a sense, weaponizes quite effectively in 1971, and and uh, you know is able to push through these these three radical amendments, 24, 25, 26, in 71, just as uh, soon after her her, her landmark victory. Now, in my view, K7 uh, in terms of its legacy has actually been remarkably successful, like I was saying, because if you look at it modestly in terms of this particular problem of the, of the, of the constitutional design, that, that it insufficiently entrenches the constitutional provisions, that has been addressed, meaning that the the ease of amendments, uh, although it's, the provisions are unchanged, the, the, the very possibility of them being subject to basic structure uh, doctrine has in a sense made it less likely that the kind of amendments that were passed uh, in, let's say, you know, Mrs. Gandhi's period, uh, you know, would be resorted to less and less. So so I would say that to that extent of the so-called misuse of, three, of, of of amendment powers, that itself has been quite adequately dealt with. And in my view, actually, I cannot think of a single constitutional amendment passed after Kesavananda, which in a sense would seem so perverse. Now, that possibility, to my mind, has been largely dealt with. Now, obviously, uh, it's interesting to think about the cases in which which Kesavananda has been deployed uh, since then. And uh, to constitutional waters in India, the most extreme example of constitutional amendment is the 42nd amendment itself, which tried to expressly address Kesavananda and undo Kesavananda. It was an amendment uh, which actually tried to changed 59 different provisions of the Indian constitution in 1976. This is during the emergency. And uh, one of the provisions he tried to change was to, you know, constitutionally uh, change 368 to allow for amendments uh, that was permitted prior to Kesavananda, meaning basically to undo Kesavananda. And uh, this was struck down uh, in, in in the Minna Ramins case. Now, an, another example of, of a particularly perverse constitutional amendment was, of course, the, the, the 39th Amendment that was passed during the emergency again, where the election to Parliament, which is, again, more mentioned, it uh, mentioned, this is the Indra in Nehru Gandhi versus Adnaraian case, where the election to the Prime Minister's office and some other offices were made above, uh, were, were, in a sense, uh, placed above judicial review. And this was again, um, struck down in, in the Nehru Gandhi. Adnan. And now, there have been a, a few other instances. I think there have been seven or eight uh, instances of constitutional amendments being struck down, uh, if I'm not wrong about the number. Now, um, they have been criticized to some extent by uh, by, by, some, by some scholars that almost all of these um, judgments have actually been in instances where where somehow either judicial review had been done away with or uh, in, in some way affected the power of the judiciary. Now, I, in my view, that criticism would be valid if amendments could be cited. If if one could cite amendments passed after Kesavananda, where basic justice doctrine doctrine should have been deployed but was not deployed, I can't think of any such instance. So, in my view, to that limited extent, it has been you know it has been successful. Uh, but but beyond that, the problem is that basic justice doctrine is admittedly an extreme an extreme solution to an extreme problem in a sense, right? So it should be deployed very carefully, you know, in, it's a nuclear option, you know, in, as, as some people call it, you know, and, and one should not use nuclear weapons when conventional weapons are are, are are you know, are adequate. It should not be deployed except very, very sparingly. Unfortunately, the Indian Supreme Court has been rather lax in that and over the last many decades we have seen, uh, we have seen basically such doctrine being deployed even in instances where ordinary statutes um, constitutionality was uh, was in question. The court has been inconsistent on this score. Initially, the court uh, had said that you know, basic doctrine should be limited to only constitutional amendments. But since then, there have been many instances where they have also deployed it for for um, for um, you know for questioning the uh, constitutionality of uh, you know in cases regarding the constitutionality of statutes. Now, I think this is this is um, unnecessary and arguably dangerous. Uh, also, uh, unnecessary simply because I can hardly think of instances where where a provision would stand ground, uh, would, would in a sense be constitutional as per the as per the text of the constitution and would require basic structure doctrine to strike it down. I mean, in my view, that's, uh, I mean, that's not something that, that I can understand. And also, basic structure doctrine is needed precisely because there is no other basis, you know, to strike down constitutional amendments. When, when there are other grounds available, then it should not resort to. And also, you know, Increasingly, of course, this this has been practiced because of the sheer prevalence of judicial indiscipline in India, of of not sticking to basic norms of of judicial functioning, like relying on on what's called, I think, judicial minimalism. But that's partly a result of Indian um, judicial culture itself, which I've written about elsewhere.
0: That's very interesting. I really like the fact that you call the basic structure doctrine the nuclear option. And I'm wondering, and perhaps, Moïse, you can take a stab at this first. Can we trust the court? Can we trust the Supreme Court in deploying this nuclear option? I'm asking this because, of course, it's not a good idea to leave nuclear weapons in the hands of institutions or persons that you can't trust.
1: Uh, I mean, you know, so in in Calcutta, where I grew up, there is a, a very solid quizzing culture, sports quiz, football quiz, cricket quiz and everything and uh, you know so it used to be said in school that whenever a football question is asked and you don't know the answer just say pele so so so, so i feel that uh, you know almost something similar is 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 happening with with basic structure i mean we we see it in the in our classes and in constitutional law it it becomes like a very convenient alibi for for rigorous constitutional arguments grounded in uh, law and precedent and everything so i mean as far as courts being trusted as Anuj said i mean it has done its job it was meant for a certain problem in the age of the total state you know maybe in contrast where the american constitutional model uh, contrary to its ideology i mean where, where it's very difficult to amend the constitution the constitution uh, the american political culture has been at its best where that ideology has been departed from and you know you've had the amendments to 13, 14, 15th amendment, anti-slavery, and so on the civil war. In India, if the constitutional ideology is that uh, uh, okay, constitution is merely a constitutional text is merely a means to attain a social revolution and so on. Maybe it is productive and generative to apply the brakes somewhere. And the basic structure doctrine uh, was uh, helpful in in kind of preventing Indira Gandhi to merely instrumentalize uh the Constitution and its ideology to serve her own uh, political purposes so in the age of the total state uh maybe uh you know it was uh proper and and when I say total state I basically mean mean using political means to to solve social questions you know that's been the Indian constitutional project maybe you you need to supplement it with the language of law and constitutionalism and to that extent, basic structure was a solid intervention in its own time. But today we have moved, and globally this is happening, from the age of the total state to what Matthias kum would call the age of the total constitution. And while constitutionalist scholars would celebrate it as kind of marking, you know, the, the, the law version of the end of history ideology, I think that there's a problem that we need to reckon with over here, and you know, say people like. Uh, Rand Herschel has written extensively on it and uh, Martin Loughlin as well, but this problem was anticipated by Schmidt himself. And the problem is this: that the more you try to legalize politics, the more you end up politicizing the law. The more you try to juridify politics, the more you will end up politicizing the enterprise of constitutional adjudication and that i think is it's almost like you know to to use a german metaphor uh, l- l- a constitutional metaphor it almost now uh, the basic structure has a uh, seems to have a almost like a radiating effect you know it has to it has to percolate into every uh, nook and crevice of the the uh, the, uh, the constitutional and political field and that is really kind of worrisome because you know it was it was like a it was a specific doctrine introduced to kind of address a specific problem and i know that there are people who kind of make this argument that okay we need a we need a a new different theory of judicial review i mean basic structure gives you all the power that you have in the world to to address uh, whatever political questions that that are thrown at you but the bigger problem is whether there is a judicial will to address those problems and the second problem with this is that because so few constitutional amendments have been struck down and basic structure is used for every, every particular constitutional issue and in a context where the judiciary in India has had a very strong establishment deferential stance. You know, I mean, previously what used to happen is in the earlier era, you know, 50s and 60s, there used to be these ideological clashes between the courts on the one hand, the parliament and the executive on the other. And you know, the courts would be, maybe you could put it in this way that courts were very conservative or courts were very liberal. And on the other hand, and 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 you could even argue that they supported in some way, at least in the land reforms issue, they supported feudal interests. And on the other hand, the the executive and the legislature, even if hypocritically so, they purported to kind of practice a ideology which was, you know, on the face of it, on paper at least, emancipatory and progressive. And socialist and, and so on, so there was always this constant uh, tussle between conservative courts and progressive legislature and executive. Even this ideological battle no longer exists, and yes, we we, we tend to hear about these institutional conflicts between courts executive legislature and so on, but you know, what it covers up entirely is that, fine, there's this inter-institutional conflict, but the language in which the people the people are being represented, the language of power that all of these institutions are using is, is sounding all the same. So there's there's no... I mean, so in that sense, you know, today, the basic structure doctrine can no longer, in in, in, in some senses, act as a boulevard because it was not designed for this kind of age of authoritarianism. You know, I, I, I am not entirely sure whether... Uh, basic structure can really help us address specifically the problems that we are responding to, because what is happening today is unlike, say, Indira Gandhi, or, you know, she she was maybe the final player in that model of constitutional po- politics or anti-constitutional politics, where she was basically suspending the constitution, you know, I mean, harkens harks back to fascism, Naz- Nazism and so on you suspend the written constitution that was the mid 20th century or or or, or rather uh, 1920s 30s and beyond that kind of politics today's politics of authoritarianism and populism is is rather very different you know no longer are i mean maybe basic structure can help those countries where uh, constitutions are being suspended uh, through these kinds of unconstitutional amendments but in in a country like india where egregious amendments are not being enacted you know in a way Hindutva, which is the hindu supremacist national ideology of our times, it is translating itself its programs into the lo- language of constitutionalism itself and i feel that authoritarianism is in a way the excess of law and i don't think that Law and legal measures alone in the form of basic structure constitutionalism can be a sufficient response to this problem. I mean, it, it, it is so long as we remain a democratic state, you would have to find a, a, a political and a democratic solution to, to this problem.
0: I'm hearing echoes of what you said right now with an article that you wrote recently for The Wire. Uh, there was a quote in that article that I really liked and I was hoping Anuj could share his his thoughts on it. You write, and I quote: "The Hindu Rashtra is not waiting to be realised in a distant future through a constitutional amendment. It's very much present in the here and now. And case of Bharati has not been able to save us from it." Anuj, what do you think? Do you think the basic structure doctrine can save us from authoritarianism?
2: Yeah, I think this is the age of what kim chapelle has called autocratic legalism right best examples being of orban in hungary and erdogan in turkey and those are of course instances where big bang constitutional changes have been made you know to kind of make possible a form of uh, authoritarianism and india interestingly has not seen that in the last 9 years uh, you know in india is being talked about by observers like the VDEM report etc as a kind of electoral autocracy now all of those changes have been made in the last 9 years without major constitutional changes there are, as far as i can see only two major constitutional changes one of which was actually struck down by the constitution Court, and the more recent one uh on, on reservations was, uh, Apple. but none of them really go to the heart of uh, the authoritarianism that we supposedly seen in the last nine years so one way of looking at it is to say that changes have not been made and uh, arguably that's perhaps also because of the spectral of basic structure doctrine but the other another way of looking at it is that there's no need for those changes because this constitution that India has is actually quite uh, quite compatible with the kind of Hindutva uh, project, with the kind of uh, Hindu majority in project. In fact, I think political scientist Vina Sitapati has claimed that India is already you know, a Hindutva state because in a sense, precisely the electoral route was available for, for, the, for that. Now, whether basic structure can be a bulwark against that, I, I do not think that that necessarily simply because the constitution if the constitution itself is uh, is quite uh, compatible with it then how would that be possible right now, and I think that's where we really have to we have to think about how the Indian constitution in a sense allows for uh, a certain kind of a majoritarian you know rule. You have to you have to remember that the Indian constitution was was enacted by an assembly which was which was almost entirely a one party uh, assembly. And the idea of, of distrust of that elected majority was not something that was taken at all seriously. And that's why we have provisions like amendment, but also on so many other areas. For instance, uh, a provision that has become, you know, in a sense controversial recently is Article 3 and Article 4 of the Constitution, which enables a legislature to change the status of uh, of, of a state from from, uh, from a state to a union territory, that is, from a, a, a federal unit to being a uh, directly administered by, 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 the, by the center. Now, this provision has already always been there. And in a sense, this was instrumentalized by the current government in, in, in 2019 to change the status of Jammu and Kashmir from a state to a union territory. Recently, I've heard you know, supporters of, of the BJP demanding that, that Kerala should also be made a territory. That is that any any part of India where uh, the ruling Bharti Janda Party uh, does not have electoral uh, appeal are not likely to have a electoral appeal in the foreseeable future, should, should no longer pay federal limit, but should be directly administered at the centre. Now this is a provision which is explicitly allowed by the constitution. And this would perhaps be Dieter Conrad's, one of ex, one of Dieter Conrad's extreme instances. But uh, once it's allowed for, once it's been, uh, once it's happened in Kashmir, arguably it can happen in another state like Punjab, another state like Tamil Nadu, another state Kerala, these are all like states where BJP has limited electoral appeal. Uh, and, and therefore we have to really perhaps ask uncomfortable questions about Indian constitutional design itself, that it allows for what Shepele calls autocratic legalism in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of kind of the uh, Orban or Erdogan model is perhaps not necessary in India at all. What we can, uh, what we have perhaps are what I think Fabio de Silva is called autocratic legalism 2.0, where, you know, little tinkering here and there within the constitutional architecture, uh, is adequate to allow for uh, you know for an Ill- illiberal democracy to sustain itself um, quite sufficiently
1: if i can uh, chip in so you know this is a very important sort of uh, point about aut- autocratic legalism and so on i mean you know so there's been a very strong critical tradition of uh, scholarship in indian history and in indian politics and less so in law but you know when the constitution was itself being framed um in the constituent assembly famously uh, a communist uh, leader uh, somnath lairi you know when when the rights chapter was being discussed and there were so many restrictions that that were imposed on fundamental rights that he said on the floor of the assembly that it seems to me that uh, the rights chapter itself has been designed from the point of view of a uh, police constable and 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 so like you know the the liberal commentariat when indira gandhi imposed an emergency they uh, read it as a kind of an exception to you know the the normalcy of a kind of a liberal de- democratic order but the critical thinkers like you know uh, one of them who very uh, who passed away recently ranajit guha the founding uh, father of subaltern uh, historiography in india When the emergency was uh, declared, he wrote a very scathing piece talking about the authoritarian streak entailed in the Indian constitution itself. He said that the piece was titled, Indian Democracy, uh, Long Dead, Finally Buried. So, you know, uh, this has always been there. However, having said that, I, I would also say that this present regime represents something in addition to what was already there. There's a complete shift in the idea. I mean, for for all of its hypocrisy, the the constitutional text as it was designed, it was meant to be in service of a uh, social revolution, which was, as I said, progressive and emancipatory, uh, notwithstanding, you know, uh, this authoritarian streak. But it could it could be argued that this authoritarianism was itself meant to be instrumental to the achievement of a social revolution. However, the authoritarian uh, structure edifice still remains. And the rhetoric of the social revolution has also disappeared. we be displaced by this kind of a Hindu supremacist nation-state model. The idea of India, I mean, so constitutional design is one thing, but this focus, if you just focus on constitutional design, it, it is almost like Nehru anticipated Modi. I mean, you, you certainly need to supplement this with a, a legal and a constitutional reckoning with political ideas and ideology, that there is a fundamental change at the level of the idea itself. You know, and, you know, I, I should end by kind of, for well, whether it's good or bad, you know, the Indian constitutional model is, you know, it, it, it might sound very banal and anodyne, but Ambedkar, when he was framing the constitution, he said that, you know, however, however so good, however good a constitution is, it might turn out uh, uh, not to be good if the people who are administering it are bad. And however bad the constitution is, it might just do your job well if, if the people who are administering happen to be a good lot. And, you know, That the fundamental, there's been a fundamental change at that level, even going beyond constitutional design. And there has to be a more serious uh, legal and political uh, and constitutional reckoning with this change in the idea of India. Being invested, I mean, when Kesavaranda Bharati was the 50th anniversary was being celebrated. There are lots of celebratory pieces in the papers which kind of said, oh, it's a, it can protect you. And, you know, it's it standing between India turning uh, from being a liberal democracy to a Hindu Rashtra and so on. It kind of, you know, just, uh, just gives you a false sense of comfort about, about the, about the task ahead. So yes, it was generative for its time, but I think, you know, we need to kind of, uh, look beyond for, for political responses to the, to the problems that we are uh, facing with today.
2: Just to add to what um, Mois said, I think there is a fundamental difference in the way Indian constitution, I mean, Indian Constitution design was thought of, which in a way, in my view, does not sufficiently entrench constitutionalism itself. You see, that, that idea of social transformation trumped the idea of distrust of an of of, of a democratically elected government, which has to be you know, uh, which is the basis of, in a sense, liberal constitutionalism. And this is actually best reflected, perhaps, in in what uh, Mohit is quoting um, Ambedkar, you know, this idea that if things go wrong under the new constitution, the reason will not be that we have a bad constitution, mm-hmm. but uh, what we will have to say is that man was vile. right? This is, I think, what Mohit is referring to. And if you counterpose it with Madison's famous quote in in one of the Federalist papers, he says, enlightened statesmen will not always be the, at the helm, and now, again, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor, exter- nor internal units on uh, controls on government would be necessary. So this you know, is kind of an almost uh, axiomatic idea of checks and balances. At, uh, not, not take it as seriously as it could have in constitutional constitution design. And therefore, these instances that we're talking about, uh, Article 3 and Article 4 with regard to uh, changing of state boundaries, etc., or, or even the identity of states, or constitutional uh, amendment itself or ordinances which are uh, being again weaponized by the current government or in the, you know, one can multiply instances of this kind because the idea was that you know you, there was a certain faith in the elected government being able to carry out uh, things in, the, in, in a kind of a bona fide manner with good faith. This is perhaps an instance of what uh, historian long forgotten Francis Hutchins talked about the illusion of permanence you know, this is a, he's talking about the late nineteenth-century uh, uh, imperial power in, in India, where you know the British thought the empire is never going to end, and in a sense, perhaps it's an instance where Congress thought that it, it will continue to have power, perhaps forever <laughs> or, or for, for the foreseeable future. So, so, so that idea of of enacting a constitution, which of creating a constitution which institutionalizes the distrust, is uh, just not there, and therefore, you know. And and it's interesting, it's remarkable, ironic almost that the, some of the people who who bring out this question, who actually articulate this point in the Muslim assembly, you know, in, this is not it's not like these questions are not asked. And one of the people who who actually most eloquently raises is Shah Prasad Mukherjee, one of the ideological forefathers of the current party in power in India, and you know, in in, in the famous exchange during the enactment of the first amendment, uh, Shah Prasad Mukherjee actually says this, you know, that you know you will not be in power forever. And you will see what will happen then with regard to you know you know the kind the kind of provisions that you are enacting. Now this is precisely that kind of foresight, that kind of way of thinking about the constitution was unfortunately you know lacking, and and, and therefore we can see that uh, this constitution that we have in India is quite compatible uh, with the Hindutva majoritarian project, and, and therefore quite compatible with even the basic structure doctrine.
0: On that grim and perhaps uncomfortable note. Let me thank our two guests, uh, Moist Undawala and Anuj Bhuvania. Thank you so much for joining us and for all of your insights.